episode we are discussing the champions role-playing game from 1981 first edition joining you as ever is dm mike along with dm liz the wonder twins of podcasting where i will form a bucket of water to fight crime i i don't even know what i'm gonna do (laughs) (laughs) shape of a podcaster (laughs) because wet crime is the worst crime Indeed. <laughs> and that would be joining us, DM Corbett, also known as Dial H for Hero. What will you be this time? A uh, guy with spring legs, probably. Woohoo! Spring leg Corbett. Yeah, yeah. And finally joining us is the sidekick supreme himself, the Rick Jones of the podcast, DM Jim. That's absolutely correct. I will sidekick anyone. Hulk, Captain America, Marvel. I don't even care if it's a net bending Marvel. Even better. Kick him in the side. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me if Rick Jones had sidekicked it to some DC characters, actually. But anyway, we're discussing champions. Or we will be, barring any announcements, which we do not have, we will take a podcast break, then talk about mechanics. Fourth win. Into a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts, they came. The Grognard Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. If you listen carefully, in the next 40 seconds, you may be struck with the same game-playing urge that sold over 4 million Dungeons & Dragons games. It's your turn. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. Listen. Imagine your view from the base of the great castle wall. You're playing the most phenomenal game ever created. The ground crumbles at your feet from the beast's thunderous footsteps. Your skin grows cold from your first glimpse of the giant silhouette. It's a product of your imagination. Survival depends on a quick, decisive move. What are you going to do? Your choices are limited. Stand and fight or run. 
Victory may be lodged in a single roll of the dice. No. In our Dungeons and Dragons game, you separate what could happen from what does. TSR Hobbies. Dungeons and Dragons. Products of your imagination. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics. Sorry, sorry, that's Mike and the Mechanics of the game. My bad. Champions, the, I suppose, first of the Hero System games created by Hero Games, conveniently enough, the super role-playing game. I always wonder why it wasn't the superhero role-playing game, but back in the day I did not realize that superhero was trademarked by Marvel and DC. But anyway, it is, I don't know if it's the very first, but it was the first one I ever encountered, 1981, at SegaCon in Atlanta, Georgia. The first point-buy system I'd come across where you literally built your character however you wanted. You had 100 points, you had 8 attributes, see if I can remember them all. Strength, Dexterity, Constitution, Intelligence, Presence, Comeliness, Ego. And then you had a bunch of others that uh, were basically mathematical formulae of those original ones. You bought your attributes up, you bought superpowers, you bought skills. You got disadvantages in order to pay for, get more points to buy more powers and skills and so forth. It is a D6 system. You only need, most stuff is resolved with 3D6, generally an 11 or less, but can be easier or harder depending on what's going on, what skills you have. Powers do damage by D6s, and that's how you build your superhero or supervillain. Theoretically, you can use it to build precisely the type of character you wanted, which, frankly, to me, was a bit better than the other systems. But Damn, dude, that was my whole top five. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, then. Let's, let's just go wind to... this episode up. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. I'll see you next time. <laughs> Mike's Cliff Notes of Champions Podcast. Now that was good. <laughs> all right, well, first impressions, Champions. I've given you mine. What's yours, Jim? Oh, dude, just like you, got it fresh off the shelf in 80-whatever, 81, uh, first edition. As soon as I walked in the game store, I mean, we'd been playing everything TSR released. D&D, I I ran Gamma World, Boot Hill, all of that. And then I saw champions from across the store, uh, Games Galore in Louisville, Kentucky, and ran to it. Because I'm like, now we're talking superhero RPG. And I I ran the crap out of that for years. I think all the way up through fourth edition, the hardback that tended to fall apart i never actually got fourth edition i stopped at third and then i was kind of like well but this works why why would i want to get a but i did the same thing with second edition ad and you know it's kind of like well but the old game works why would i get a new one i went all in at first sight although it took a little while to segue my D group that was my brother and high, his high school buddies and my college friends it was a little bit of a, a culture shock you know everybody's first character that that 100 points which we quickly doubled to 200 points was, was like super dwarf and super mage and super barbarian took a while to break them of that because they weren't comic book fans they didn't venn diagram the same way i did killed all the super villains and checked their spleens for emeralds <laughs> we were a bunch of little murder hobos it took a, it was an adjustment mm-hmm. corbett I don't know. It was kind of funny to read it uh, again after I read it before, 
But, well, was uh, it your first superhero RPG? It was not my first superhero game. It was definitely not my first superhero game. My first one was... Actually, I really think it was either Super Game or... I know Villains and Vigilantes was my original one that I really sunk my teeth into. I think Super Game was probably my first, if I remember right. Was that Chaosium or Super Game? Or am I thinking of Super World? No, Super Game was, uh, was a pretty off there. Jim just got a copy of it. I thought it was funny when he showed me. They showed it online, and I was like, wow. I've got that somewhere. It was uh, 1980 by Jay and Amy Hartlove and uh, point, a point cloud system. So it predicted some elements of champions, but it was pretty cheesy. No, it's, it's pretty cheap. Well, there's that and there's Super Squadron. And I had a couple actually before I really got the champion. So champions was kind of my third or fourth dip into. Um, I think it's funny that for me, the point system was kind of secondarily put in the idea of being able to build what i want because there's times when i have a perfect idea and i want that but there's also times when i want to be thrown something and figure out how i can make it into something so but i've also seen randomized versions of uh, champions yeah the third book champions three in the first through third printings had a random for you to roll up random powers so that was a uh, for like me though, that sort of thing <laughs> for me though it was fun it was fun because it was a throwback to i guess the the way every game book i read that i picked up from p picker because that was my game source really was going to p picker uh, p picker was a local uh, used bookshop or comic book shop or it's still there uh, it, it it was a catch-all of just about everything and yeah. nothing was in any real kind of order you just had to be willing to spend hours walking through the labyrinths of shelves looking for stuff because, I mean, they took a vague stab at, you know, putting things in alphabetical author order, but they really didn't keep it up. It's I like, love places like that where there's just an old guy behind the counter yes. who's still on Windows 3 and he don't care. It's out there somewhere. Much, that is pretty much the pea picker experience in Tyler, Texas. You go in there and just no one is going to help you. <laughs> and you need to be prepared to spend at least an hour or two looking for what you want, because you are not going to go in and out and find it like that. It's like, you're going to have to spend some real time and yeah. just hope. <laughs> I don't know. I got help occasionally. You go like, oh, yeah, the comics, they're in that corner. Yeah, they're over there. <laughs> <laughs> that way this is the experience i pull back by <laughs> that, that smell of just old books everywhere yeah flipping through the hand typed pages the superhero fun it's there so it was easy to kind of go right back to it and if I, I do remember playing it the first time i was like oh okay this makes sense it has fundamental rules and it's really pretty much you build a guy i think the only thing i remember it was the first game i remember being like wow this takes a long time to make a character huh <laughs> It does. It does. I was really rambling. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Liz? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, Champions was my first superhero game. I did not play... I didn't play the DC heroes. I didn't play Marvel superheroes. I didn't play V&V. I didn't play any of those until after I had played Champions. So Champions was my first superhero game, and that was when I was a freshman in freshman or sophomore in college. So this was, you know, like 1990, maybe 1991. And I started with third edition. 
I do remember it being pretty crunchy for my taste, but it wasn't the first crunchy game I'd played because, you know, I'd done Call of Cthulhu, which was point by, and I'd even tried playing um, Shadowrun. Yeah, uh, doing Shadowrun, stuff like that. I really liked the setup, but yeah, it, it took a long time for me to make a character, and that was with Mike helping me and, you know, some of his friends um, who they'd all been playing champions yeah. for years. Mike Haskins, Joe Grant. Yeah, I guess my first impression of the game was, wow, it's really cool to be able to play a superhero, and gosh, there's a lot of math. <laughs> I'm I'm half a shoebox of D6 is short here, guys. Can you lend me a few? Yeah, I did not have <laughs> enough. I did not have enough dice to play this game, at least not D6s. Yeah, your average attack did like, 10 to 15 d6 of damage only to find out that none of it got through your your guys the guy's it, shield yeah, so force field or yeah it's like you roll a bucket full of d6s and <laughs> and it feels really empowering when you do it is like yeah. you know, this avalanche of dice comes out and after you spend the time adding up all the pips it's like yeah, he soaks it yeah how about a little knockback just for the effort yeah, yeah, come on. Yeah, he's yeah, got yeah. knockback resistance. Sorry. I hate you. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's go into top five then and get this show on the road. The Save for Half Top Five in five, four, three, two. Jim, you want to start us off? Ah, uh, sure. I liked and even appreciate now some. A lot of what we're going to talk about are things that will seem obvious to modern gamers, but Champions was really good about popularizing or pioneering some of this and endurance as a power source for all your powers, which is just like a spell point system. And I came up in the day where it was like D&D versus spell point system. And they're always arguing which way was better. In the superhero game, I thought that was a masterstroke. Everything runs on endurance. You know exactly how many times you can fire off that ice storm or whatever you're projecting. True. My problem is it, you had to spend endurance to do everything, though. I mean, even kicking or punching or stuff. Well, at least it wasn't as bad as some of the other games that were out there where sitting down and standing up, you had to track how much... Fair you know, point, fair point. Yeah, it's like, oh, you need to sit down on this chair. Well, that's going to be like one quarter point. You better mark that off. It's like, really? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and we'll talk about it a lot this episode, I imagine, uh, that it's a pretty crunchy math-driven system. And my tastes have changed as I've aged as a gamer. But when I was a teenager and in my uh, young early 20s, you couldn't make it crunchy enough for me. So I just adored that. And like in Champions 3, there were all those little uh, sidebars, Goodman says. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember who that Goodman was. It wasn't Steve Joe Goodman, Goodman, obviously. Okay, Steve Goodman. And they're not cheats, but they're little hacks. Like, okay, how to, how to make things round a certain way so that you got maximum endurance efficiency. I at that age when this game came out, I ate that stuff up with a spoon. And it was so different than anything else prior. And of course, there was the whole thing of the more mathy it was, the more intelligent we felt. Oh, you don't pay those simple games; those are for kids or whatever. We play the really advanced stuff. It's like it's all games, guys. But we were teenagers, so yeah. But anyway, all right. Well, Corbett, 
uh, one of the things I thought was kind of funny. It wasn't, a, I don't know if it was a bad thing or not, but it was kind of funny that they put a glossary in at the front of the book to define everything in the book to let you know what you were getting into. I, I found it helpful because it was right there, but I really expect a glossary to be at the back. <laughs> so yeah. I, I didn't know what to make. And this is more of a, I guess, an editorial thing, but I thought it was intriguing enough to comment on that. Maybe they thought that <laughs> since they were throwing so many new terms at you that it would be best to keep it in the front. I don't know. It, it didn't hurt my feelings. It was just more of an yeah. odd placement. I'm sure I found it helpful. It, God, how old was I? <laughs> 13. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's a good point because 81 is early enough that rule systems that you would buy were still transitioning from, I'm Jim Ward, I'm going to sit down and write Metamorphosis Alpha as a stream of consciousness. The rules happen in the order they occur to me to, okay, this is how you organize a set of rules. Original D&D. Yeah. I'm still pretty convinced that at least as far as the Brown books go in OD&D with monster placements and stuff, you know, none of those monsters were alphabetized. And I'm still convinced that they decided what went where in order to make sure that everything filled up a page completely without any white space left over. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have computer typesetting back then. Yeah. So it it's like, okay, was cut yeah. and paste. Yeah. It's like, which entries will fit together on this page? Okay, these are the ones that are going to be on this page. Now for the next one. <laughs> apples to apples, even in the modern age of InDesign, Liz, back me up. Mm-hmm. When you're laying out a book and you've got one little like half syllable orphan, will you go in and just remove a preposition and snug it up? Because <laughs> I will. Yeah, it's like you know, if I can if I can get rid of a tiny little extra word that's not going to change anything, I will do that. I mean, at first I will try to sure, sure. you know kind of massage the the text. It's like okay, let's shrink it. You know, minus five, minus ten. Okay, this still isn't working. Let's do something else. <laughs> okay, well. So yeah, sounds like a glossary was pretty ideal where it was, more or less. Liz? Okay, number five. Let's see. Like I said, I started with third edition. Reading the first edition set of the rules, it kind of struck me as a bit weird because we certainly never did this when I was starting to play with you guys. Playing materials. To play champions, the following materials are necessary. One, a copy of champions. Yeah, sure, that makes sense. Two, paper and pencil for each player. At least 3D6. (laughs) Very optimistic on their part, but okay. And finally, a ruler or tape measure. This is necessary, according to them. It's like, I never used a ruler or tape measure playing champions. And so after, you know, I was going through there, we've also got the third edition set of rules here at home too. So I pulled that and I looked to see ruler and tape measure are not listed in the materials needed in third edition. So I'm wondering, did they just take that out because nobody was actually using rulers and tape measures? (laughs) Well, before and after hex mats, right? Yeah. And, you know, again, I can't but wonder if it's still that residual wargamer mentality still hanging on. And I heard from somewhere, I can't remember who, but that McDonald had originally written Champions because he was actually working on Superhero 2044 and decided, you know, instead of modifying just to make a whole new rule system, I wonder if they required a tape measure too. I'd have to look that up. 
I'd be curious to find out. That's a good point, but he definitely was doing work on an expansion, like even if it was just extra villains for uh, Superhero 2044. I could see where you would want one, say, if you were playing in a tournament situation and you wanted to be very precise and accurate to make sure that, you know, the activities of a certain team were definitely working or not working. But regular play, unless you're a just a big table full of war gamers or rules lawyers. We never used that. And we just kind of went on the fly with, okay, from the way you described where your character was and what you were doing, it sounds like you were here. And so this is what happens to you with an area effect or whatever. But Well, think about it, though. The combat system, whether it's combat maneuvers or powers or anything like that, it's very exact. I could see this working to tabletop miniatures play very well. So I I could definitely see that. Mike, I bet you've got a number five. Rumor has it. We'll see if I'm right. (laughs) It's repetitive, but I'll say this was both a good and bad. I love the point by system, but even back in the day, I think I, I glossed over some of the details of the combat system because it was just too crunchy. I bought the Cardboard Heroes from Steve Jackson Games and used on a on a hex mat for a while. But after a while, you know, you just kind of reach a point of, eh, theater of the mind. But yeah, at the time, for, and for years afterwards, up till about 86, 87, I was just, it says that much. We do exactly that. Every crunchy bit until 4th edition, which I thought got even crunchier. And that was kind of my... Okay, that's it. I'm sticking with the older version. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't remember at the time rule books being as big as that fourth edition one was. I mean, now they're common. Like DCC is at least that thick. But back at the time, we're like, oh, you could hurt somebody with this book. And the software in the back. I mean, I found out later that the reason the software was there is they had already paid for a computer game. And the company making the computer game basically collapsed shortly after writing the character generation part of it. And so they thought, well, hell, we'll just put it on a, a five and a half, five and a quarter floppy and stick in the back of the book and sell it along with the rule book. But at the time I was like, you need a software to build a character now? Forget this. And you didn't need it, but, you know, that was my gut reaction at the time when I opened the book and saw this disc in the back. Yeah, that is kind of the impression that it made. Yeah. Accurate or not. Insert snarky remark about D&D 3.5. <laughs> and the email bag fills up. No. Four. My number four is the game design genius of, I mean, it's common now that you would have flaws and weaknesses and various things as a way to get more points to build your character with. But that in Champions, especially in 81, it was presented including who your allies were, who your enemies were, what were some of your background as part of that point build system. So you were doing character background while you were just trying to ramp up your powers. It was all built in and under the hood. I thought that was really sweet. And, and, and obviously as uh munchkin players my guys tried to abuse the hell out of the system and we went through a process of what happens when you set out with a superhero who's hated by everyone and chased by everyone but even that was fun to play through but a nice touch you know that your your allies and your resources are part of your point build and it and it gave you a little empowerment insofar as that you felt like i'm choosing my character's disadvantages it's not due to its his race or his class or his alignment this is my choice 
I mean, not to sound like a broken record, but I mean, things that are commonly built into games now, that was revolutionary in 81. Yeah, definitely. All right, Corvid, four. I had a problem making a character. Mostly it's because of the character I chose. Hong Kong Fui, who is, of course, the number <laughs> one super guy. As of we course, all know. yeah. That needs to be the outro music right now. As of this minute. <laughs> well, anyway, anyway. <laughs> the thing is... I was I was kind of toying with the idea of okay he's got martial arts he's got a secret identity he has transformation you know little things supercar it was pretty obvious stuff but I realized he has unusual looks but he's not horrifying and the the um the the defect or disadvantage of unusual looks is designed around the idea of you look hideous or you look horrible and Hong Kong Fui is a dog or really <laughs> or really beautiful it says in there at least in the first edition. It was either, at least I think it was in the first edition. People react poorly. No, it's it's all pretty much people react poorly. People poorly. It's unusual, okay. startling. And that's huh. the thing. Hong Kong Fui definitely has an unusual look because he's a talking dog. But nobody notices it. So it should be a disadvantage. But this it's is really not a disadvantage <laughs> because it, it's not impeding him in any way. But he's a dog. Well, he is a dog, but, but he also sounds like Scatman Crothers, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. If everybody sounded like Scatman Crothers, it'd be fine. I wish I sounded like <laughs> Scatman Crothers. You give the character 1d6 of luck. That kind of explains why, even though he has those really weird, unusual looks, nobody seems to bat an eyelash that, hey, there's a talking dog wearing a karate gi and a domino mask <laughs> going and around. That and <laughs> is the story of how Liz fixed Hong Kong Fooey for champions. <laughs> Don't say we fixed him because he's a dog, and that just sounds really bad. Liz did not fix Hong Kong Fooey, okay? Oh, dear. That absolutely did not ever happen. Unusual looks is a little awkward for using it for that that particular purpose. I I thought it was intriguing, though. But you really did that back in the day because that's cool. Because <laughs> um, you 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 made me start going. I'm like, okay, all right. Transformation limitation filing cabinet required. <laughs> <laughs> Instant change limit must have filing cabinet. Yes. Well, that's the beauty of making your own character too. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want to do Kong Kong, Hong Kong Fui. Away you go. Custom design. Yeah. But he kills people. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Hong Kong Fui, but he kills people. Uh, for listeners who may not know, I tried running a Champions game in Tucson, Arizona at one time, and I foolishly put an ad up in the game store to get new players cold, and somebody created a Spider-Man character. That was, I want to make him, he's just like Peter Parker and just like Spider-Man, only he kills people. This was before Venom, by the way, guys. So this was just like, really? Spider-Man? So he was original. Venom before his time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm serious about. I mean, I know we all went through. We all played D and D, and we all played Champions. So there's a version of this we all went through where the other players don't also share an interest in comic books. So there's like stages. The first stage is super dwarf, super Viking, blah blah blah, super wizard. Then the next stage is they all want to be Wolverine or the Punisher. You have to break them of that. <laughs> Unless that's the game you're running. I mean, Champions did dark champions for a while where they actually encouraged that sort of proto 90s play then by third stage they're showing up wanting to be saturday morning cartoons and you're glad 
Yep. <laughs> anyway, number four, Liz. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay, number four. One of the things you can do when you are creating a character in Champions, because you have so much math involved, taking, okay, in order to get this set, you have to add these two attributes together and then divide by three. And this is the number for, you know, fill in the blank. But they say, you know, when you're using the formulas, your numbers are not always going to come out evenly. And when the fractional remainder is one half, the number should be rounded in the character's favor, either up or down. Normally, at least when I was learning to play champions, one of the things that was pointed out to me, and I'm sure a lot of other people have done and still do this, you know, even now, deliberately making your numbers for your primary stats so that when you are adding your numbers to get your secondary stats, that you can use the roundoffs to your advantage in order to save points when making characters. So you're giving your stats just enough that it will automatically round to the next number. And so you can use that point somewhere else. Yeah. Chris Walker is notorious for that. He can make those points scream. See, that's not even power gaming because Goodman says to do that. Yeah. In, in Champions 3. Yeah. But it's like, okay, we're going to use this math to our advantage and we'll just give ourselves just enough to get to where we want to be. And then we can use those extra points for our powers and stuff later. Especially for <laughs> stuff like speed and recovery. Yeah. It's definitely okay. Well, my four, it's disadvantages. The concept originally, like Jim said, was new, at least to me, and it was really cool. However, also kind of like Jim inferred, there's that period where you run into characters who are quadriplegic, hated by everyone, <laughs> and allergic to air, and hates Pepsi. <laughs> and as GM, you had to go, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do this. Okay, before I get in any more trouble, Jim, three. Oh, back to me. My number three is a uh, component of the way this game system works that I have uh, shamelessly stolen for a superhero RPG I may be working on personally, because if it's not broke, don't fix it. I, I didn't steal much, but this is too good not to use. And that's the idea that in Champions, your powers are defined by the effect they have rather than individually parsed out by exact name and dynamic. In other words, I do an energy blast. It could be anti-protons, fire, ice. It doesn't matter. It's an energy blast. And maybe another thing that somebody who's 30 or younger is just shrugging their shoulders and going, yeah, that's great. So this game does it. That game does it. Well, nobody had done it before Champions that I'm aware of. In full disclosure, I also have written a superhero role-playing game, Victorious, and I did the same thing too for Blast. And several superhero games don't do that. Marvel superheroes didn't do that. I don't think villains and vigilantes do that, does that. It's not just an effective game mechanic. It's in a way to address one of the design problems of a superhero game, which is 80 or 90 years of comic books where uh, comic book writers are just making it up as they go. How do, you, how do you confine the entirety of that to, in the case of Champions First Edition, a little 70-page saddle-stitch book? Yeah, and quite frankly, if you do it that way... It saves on your typed text. You can lower your page count instead of, 
okay, we're going to explain exactly how an ice blast works. Now we're going to spend a paragraph or two explaining how a fire blast works. It's like, it's like, well, do you really want to write what's essentially the same stuff over and over and over again? Yeah, I've seen <laughs> games where they do write it over again, and they usually take out the word fire and replace it with ice <laughs> or lightning. But it increases that page count for that price point. Ka-ching. It's like, ah! But it, it, it makes logical sense, and it, it's an effective way to... I mean, what's the name of the game in war games and role-playing games? Simulating other events with dice and and mathematics it's a really good way to do it well i think i think you had said it before you called it skinning our dress rehearsal right right (laughs) a power has an effect but it can be skinned any way you want because video games do that they essentially have an effect and they just change the way it appears or presents itself oh lord don't get me started i have a whole hour-long lecture on what modern video games and morgues owe to gary gygax wow Tune in later for Jim's PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> <laughs> PowerPoint. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Corbett, number three. I feel like I'm complaining a lot, and Jim's giving it all the praise. I but I'm going to complain some more. So, so it's a fair and balanced podcast. Is yeah. that what you're saying? I guess so. I think one of the problems I had with Champions is probably my own problem. Because <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, is is this another Hong Kong Fui story? No, 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 no. Well, this is a totally different okay. TV reference. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no. When I first played Champions, and I re- when rereading the rules, I remember coming into this problem, and I have I am probably the only person who seems to have this problem because I'm the only person who grew up. Well, no, I'm not the only person who grew up watching Batman, but I'm the only one who wanted to have a sidekick. To, to, to like, yeah, we're, we're together, chum. You got it. And, and everybody always goes into the superhero games making their own guy. And it seems like champions really didn't have a very well-defined sidekick system unless you make a totally different character, which means you then have two characters. Or you give up part of your points to make your sidekick, and that gets all weird. Or you make them a dependent, which seems dumb because they're supposed to be helping you. So, I, and I remember Robin that, the boy hostage. Yeah. I guess it depends on your definition of how the character is portrayed because the boy hostage is one of his monikers it is but he's also there helping him a lot or if you play the role reversal of the green hornet where bruce bruce lee was the one <laughs> who was definitely not the hostage <laughs> it's the kato show it is so i i i i don't really slight it because it's a very awkward character add-on and i think i, I feel like i'm the only person who ever asked for like oh i want to add a sidekick to my character and i see it in other games but it becomes like a comedy relief piece instead of a a buddy show. Yeah, I can't think back in the day. I think it was many years before I had anyone ask about a sidekick. I remember when I first bought Champions, and I spent all my money for the convention, the, the spending money for Champions, and a membership to the Adventurers Club, both a magazine and kind of their generic gaming club. And I remember the first newsletter I got from them actually in the back had rules for sidekicks because it's not actually in the first edition rule book. Oh, my God, you're right. You just triggered my memory. I was sitting there the whole time Corbett was talking going, I know I've seen these rules somewhere. Where the hell were they? Yeah, I think was they added that- them in the third edition, didn't they? Or was it the – Probably. Um, but- I, th- I remember them being in third edition. I definitely but, saw the yeah, ones that you were, were talking about though, Mike. Yeah, it was kind of on this, I guess – they, they printed the newsletter kind of on this green paper, 
actually had a picture of this insect hero with a little buggy sidekick. <laughs> if you got this disadvantage, you you got the character and it was like half built on half the points of your hero. And then, of course, you had it. It kind of had a somewhat effect of a dependent NPC, but like you say, a bit more competent. So, yeah, but yeah, it wasn't in the original rulebook. Yeah, it's one thing that a lot of, well, a lot of games at the time were shooting more for, all right, I want to make Superman, I want to make Spider-Man. And those are two totally cool characters. But I was, a, I guess I was the goofball. Let's face it, you know, um, at, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think sidekicks were really more of a DC thing than a Marvel thing. Yeah, very true. Well, Bucky. Uh, Robin, <laughs> Bucky, Sandy, Speedy. Well, okay, uh, Toro, Wonder Girl for a while. On, uh, except for, you know, the Golden Age. Yeah, there's a Golden Age hero. Well, Golden Age, Silver Age hero. Right, but even in the Silver Age, they, they got rid of all the sidekicks and made them the Teen Titans. So Well, post-Frank yeah, Wortham and all that fussy raised in the 50s, they got rid of a bunch of them. Yeah, well, yeah. And I kind of wonder when comics were starting out in the Silver Age, if they believed we have to have a young character for the kids buying the comic books to personally relate to. And they can imagine themselves there helping the hero if that wasn't what was going through their heads when they first introduced those really young sidekicks. And then later on... No, that's exactly right. I mean, of all the things Stanley gets credit for that he didn't do, what he deserves a bunch of credit for is he strong-armed Martin Goodman into publishing Spider-Man because the whole hard sell there was he was a teenager and nobody thought a teenager could carry a book. Yeah. Wiz Comics and Captain Marvel, Billy Batson, was a kid. I mean, he transformed into the adult hero, but, you know, he was the hero himself and not the sidekick of another hero. Yeah. Um, Back, he had sidekicks, but if you count the Shazam family as sidekicks. but Boy, that was such a, a much more innocent time. I mean, that yeah. would never fly today. Yeah, Put some kids in danger. Oh, gosh. Yeah, this 10-year-old kid sleeping by himself in underground subway tunnels and stuff. It's like, no way is that going to fly today. <laughs> I, I, I'm slipping on who the artists are because I don't uh, read that many comics anymore. But there's a story going around, although news sites now, because the Shazam movie's out. And it's some Superman mm -hmm. story they did with Captain Marvel in it where he screwed, Captain Marvel screwed up and hurt somebody. And Superman's chasing him to, to pound some sense into him. And when he gets to him, Captain Marvel's just sitting there crying. And he... And he's like, what's the matter? He's mm -hmm. like, that was my friend. And he transforms back to Billy and reveals to Superman that he's just a kid. And Superman's like, oh, my God. And the next thing you know, Clark Kent is showing yeah. up at the orphanage to help him out. That was the first Thunder. It was a comic book miniseries. It was really good. You can still you can get the trades nowadays. Um, you can probably find them on Amazon and stuff. Or in Doctor. Yeah. Yeah, that's where that comes from. It was Superman and Shazam, Captain Marvel, together. It was, it was pretty cool. And Superman gets in the wizard's, the old wizard's face about what the hell were you doing giving the powers to this little kid? Right, right. <laughs> But, but back in the 40s, yeah. it was all fine, especially if if you had money. Just go adopt a kid and then throw him straight into Crime Alley. Yeah, you know. <laughs> anyway, sidekicks. All right, Liz, your turn. I don't know. You might have to beat me if I go into my number we three. We can, but hope. Yeah. <laughs> Just have a whole bunch of beeps and nothing else. Go, Liz, go. And, <laughs> and, and that'll be my number three. <laughs> all right. Number three. I would like to talk about the differences between getting a multi-power 
versus getting an elemental control in champions. Both of them are ways where you can group your powers together. Elemental control is kind of a way to make sure that all of your powers have a, a running theme. They all make sense together. All of your powers have our ice stuff, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it gives you point bennies. You can get three powers. You're only paying for X amount instead of the full three, yada, yada, yada. And then multi-power, which is, I mean, if you read about multi-power, ultimately it is giving you more flexibility with your power usage because you are drawing from a central point reserve and you're dividing it as you wish from phase to phase in a combat round. But I gotta say, most of the time when I created characters and champions, I almost never used multi-power. I always used elemental control instead because at least for me, keeping up with which powers were on and which were off from phase to phase within a combat was such a it was such a logistical nightmare for teenage me <laughs> that I usually just defaulted to the easier to understand elemental control when creating characters because I always knew what powers were what how much juice they had wasn't as ultimately flexible as the multi-power build but it was easier for me to use once the character was created. I'm not sure how I would feel about multi-power now if I tried making characters and champions as an adult. I got so used to using elemental control, I don't know that I would. If it makes you feel any better, my brother and I used to argue about this back in the day constantly, and he was always multi-power and I was always with you in elemental control. And like he turned into an engineer and I turned into an artist, so that's why I'm on <laughs> Well, I guess that makes sense. But yeah, it's like there's too much bookkeeping involved in multi-power, even if it does, you know, logically, it makes more sense. Because, you know, well, if I need more points in my force field right at this in at this certain time, I can put all of my point reserve into force field. And then after this is over and I no longer need it all in my force field, I can move some of it over to, you know, an energy blast. It's like, that's a lot of work. I don't want to do that much work. I'm just making elemental control. I am a multi-power person. <laughs> I, I typically use multi-power because it was the easy way for me to do or to, to emulate like utility belts. Well, yeah, mechanical awesome. gear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I used multi-powers, it was exclusively armors or... Yeah, like technological or magical artifacts kind of things. I'm looking at the psychology aspect of this. Uh, so, Mike, I know you're a history professor. Corbett, do you mind disclosing what you do for a living primarily? I'm an, I'm an IT tech. Oh, see? See how this works? <laughs> yeah. The, the people who are more mathematically and scientifically inclined are more comfortable yeah. with multi-power. I, I will say in, in your defense, Liz, though, it is still logistically difficult because when I would do it, I would make like little uh, index cards of like, this is the power, this is the power, this is the power, this is the power, and these are the point totals I have. And I'll shuffle them around to make it work when I need to change things. Did, did you keep the index cards in a literal real-life utility belt so you could whip them out? Oh, that would have been awesome. Well, in, a, <laughs> in a little plastic sleeve. So, no. <laughs> I have a utility belt for my utility belt. <laughs> okay. Well, my three. The skill system. As portrayed in the book, I really liked it. It was, I think it was only like 20 skills, something like, and they were very clear. Now, I will be 
honest that about half of them were direct combat skills, but and the others were stuff that you were going to use specifically for superheroing. There was like detective work, disguise, find weakness. Although I guess that's more of a combat thing. Your Honor, I would like the jury to recognize that my client has liked a skill system now. <laughs> hey, Victorious has a skill system very similar to this one's, I must say. But the point is, you didn't buy accounting or engineering or artistic expression or anything like that. The game just assumed that was your secret identity. That's what you did. I thought that was cool. That's your background of your character. That's your concept. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to do, well, do you have liturgical dance? Or, well, you can't, your dance, but it's square dance, not river dance. So, yeah, you can't do this. Or uh, you have ship sailing, but don't know how to use a sextant. Or you (laughs) forgot (laughs) a sextant. that for a deep cut? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You have the navigation skill, but because you, as the player, did not think to ask whether or not there was a sextant on the ship, even though the character who has navigation would have known to check for that, because you, the player, did not say, I'm looking to see if there's a sextant. Well, there's not one, and now you can't figure out where the hell you see, are. See, 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 Jim bought say. the skill, how to, how to start crap. <laughs> didn't didn't say you cast it, so now there's oogers, okay? Yeah. My character has navigation so that I, the player, don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I like that system. In the second book, Champions 2, they introduced the horde of skills. And they were only like one to three points each, but it was just a huge list of skills. And I'm like, I, that's when it was... No, this is ridiculous. You don't need this. But anyway, that's my three. Jump two. I am intrigued as an adult, didn't even realize this when I was playing the game as a kid, that the combat and the entire system are all bell curves all the time. I just knew Champions was different from D&D and didn't understand why when I was young. But because D&D obviously is a mixture, ad hoc mixture of the two. You know, your two hit probabilities are linear, but your fireball is bell curve damage but not champions champions is even your to hit probability is just a bell curve that moves back and forth your powers are bell curves that shrink and expand depending on what's going on and that's that's a nice little game design mechanic i think that's interesting and worthy of note okay as 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 has been repeatedly pointed out all you need are a great big bunch of d6s to play this game a heaping helping I mean, but, but frankly, thanks to champions and fireball spells, I can count uh, the pips on uh, pip d6 faster than I can if they have numbers on them. Yep. Even though in champions, yeah, you, you roll a d6, and for the damage, it's you know stun or body, and your stun you just add the numbers up. But body, it's like if you rolled a one, that's zero body. If you rolled a two through five on the die, it's one body, and a six, it's two body. So yeah, he, when he talks about adding up pips, he's Boom. And I apologize that all of mine have been game design mechanic things, but it's just what I've been thinking about for like a year and a half now. It's okay. I I, I am not in a position to throw stones at glass houses. Trust <laughs> me. All right, Corbett. I'm torn about. I think it's a really great idea that they put in perception rolls. Probably this is probably the first game I remember. I think the only one that came after that, or right around the same time, would have been uh, Call of Cthulhu. That had like investigation and spot problem solving. Yeah, but 
perception rolls were like something that they put in the champions and I'd forgotten they, that they were there actually, but I'm sure I am almost a hundred percent sure. Okay. I'm like 35% sure, but I fill in the rest with hope, but I am pretty sure that they, that's what carried over to make the third edition of D and D's perception role, which I hate because it, it goes from, Hey, there's something inobvious. You're not expecting to see make a roll to, Hey, you walk into a bar, make a roll. There's a drink in front of you. You <laughs> failed it. You don't notice your drink. You know. Yeah. Uh, things like that. Corbett, do you think that's uh, your distaste for that in part driven by you know why are we rolling dice for something we should be role playing? Yeah, a little bit. Reading through it in Champions, it makes perfect sense. They they lay it out in a very good way of okay. There's something in obvious that you are not going to see if you were looking, but if you paid attention because there's detective work involved in being a crime fighter, you'll notice that. There's a scuff on his shoe, which indicates he's, you know, very Sherlock Holmes stuff. But in it, it I know that rule, that rolling wound up in D&D somehow. I know in a lot of the AD&D games that I played in the late 80s, early 90s, and I don't know if it was because of the perception rolls in this game or in Call of Cthulhu or wherever, but a lot of people in AD&D were house ruling a perception stat. Kevin did it a lot. Yeah, so you had your your main stats for your D&D character and there was an extra stat added on, perception. So I was seeing that in house ruled into AD&D stuff around this time. Well, it's all just or time and place. On. There's a time and place where yeah. the the player neither the player nor the character know, okay, what's the chance let's roll dice. Right. As opposed to the player knows damn good and well, there's an invisible villain there and is trying to say his character can see it and he can't. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Game knowledge versus player knowledge. Yeah. Well, it's a clue driven game versus a we go stab the monster game. Yeah. Of course, the thing is, if there's something that is vital for the story <laughs> to go further, yeah. And you make it a perception roll, and everybody at the table fails it. Will. You have just boxed yourself into a corner. It's like crap. They need to know I mean, we've this. All done this that. is vital. We've all done that. That's yeah. adventure writing fail one hundred and one. Don't don't like put a the, bottleneck in your adventure that depends on a die right. roll. It's like this was a vital thing for someone to have noticed, but no one has noticed it. What the hell do I do now? Mm. You know? <laughs> and that's why I'm kind of torn. I, I don't hate the rule, but I kind of hate what it monstered itself into eventually. So Yeah, eh. it, it's one of those you've got to really, really handle it judiciously. Like I think you make a perfectly fair point. Yeah, generally I reached a point to where if I allow a perception roll of any kind, I just, if they make it, I give them an extra clue. If they still haven't figured it out by then, that's on them. But, okay. Liz, you're number two. Number two. I am going to talk about character sheets. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) They were awesome. (laughs) They were awesome. I love the character sheets for champions from the very first time I saw them. They had the male and the female full body forms. You know, if you can't draw, you can choose. And it's not just one of each. You had different poses, you know, like four or five different poses for male and female, you know, whether they're flying or they look like they're getting ready to punch someone or whatever. And you could also choose, you know, what kind of build, whether it's really muscular or if he's like, and then you just, you know, kind of draw the outfit around them. 
And because I do like to draw my own characters, you know, I just took one of those sheets and pasted a blank square of paper over one of the forms and photocopied a, a blank spot so I could draw my own stuff. But I just thought it was really, really cool that they put this together so that people who aren't necessarily fantastic artists, you know, they've already got the form. And it's just really super cool. <laughs> Back in the day, some of the players in Greenville actually got some of those body forms and tried to photocopy them, sec at least the bust, head and shoulders parts, onto the Goldenrod AD&D sheets <laughs> for their characters, since none of us could really draw that way. Well, that's a pretty good idea, too. <laughs> yeah. But I think it was somewhere in this book, which um, this hadn't occurred to me at the time, but they're giving advice on using the forms and drawing in the, the costumes and stuff. But they said, you know, if there's any parts of the line that you need to get rid of because you're wanting to have like a little mini skirt or something, they suggest taking a little X-Acto blade and just very gently scraping the paper to get rid of the line there, which personally was not something that ever occurred to me. And most people I saw usually just used whiteout instead, but it's like... Or erasers. Yeah, or erasers. You know, but it's like, huh, yeah, you could do that, couldn't you? It's like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's super old school 70s advice. That's when newspapers yeah. were just waxed galley type on boards and you'd have to go in and put an extra period in by cutting it in. <laughs> okay, I know you didn't care about this, but the math, the math was on the character sheet too. And although... Yes. It's not as cool as the characters, and they were cool. The math was there. It was very handy oh, to gosh. reference because, oh, my gosh, there's a lot of numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. the, the phases and your endurance stun and body numbers. I was always referring to that particular section on the character sheet. You know, you had your phases 1 through 12, and you just circled the ones where you were able to move. And it's like, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> okay. My number two. I'm going to put the GM hat on for a while on this one. Describe the GM hat. I think it's a top hat. Actually, it's a little beanie with a propeller on it. <laughs> I thought it was like a giant Jiffy Pop crown. <laughs> I was thinking train conductor hat. I'm just having fun. I've, I've seen your GM hat. It is a stylish steampunk top hat with goggles. It, with goggles, of course. Anyway, in D&D, &D, for those who aren't aware of champions, there's character generation rules, and then there are monster rules. And generally, you can deal with monsters or other general opponents with kind of a shorthand. Hit points, armor class, weapon, damage, and, -da -da, and that's pretty much all you need. Champions does not work that way. Your villains have to be built the exact same way as heroes. Now, you can give them more points with villain bonuses to make them more tough. But if you're dealing with a group of, say, five players wanting to have a big throwdown, like, say, the X-Men or the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants or something, as the GM, you've got to run five or six different NPC villains at the same time. And for, I don't know about the rest of y'all, but certainly easy to do your own individual character enough, but having to do five in the middle of one of these combats... They could take hours. Plus spend a whole weekend just generating them, which I got really oh, quick gosh. at after a while because I had to. Yeah. And that's, again, that it, it would have helped if champions could have developed a quick churnout of core attributes that you can use to get by with a villain for a fight. 
rather than having to build this entire character that odds are is just going to be fought once and then thrown into prison. That's some players going to one shot in phase one. <laughs> Pretty much. 20d6 energy blast or something. And then, I spent oh. six hours making this guy and you just knocked him out in the first round of combat, you creep. <laughs> now, granted, you can do the Doctor Doom mindset in which, you know, you just have one really powerful villain that everyone has to gang up on. But that gets old after a while. The heroes want to have these group versus group throwdowns. So that's my grouse, is as a GM, that was always a big headache for me. I thought you were going to say the Doctor Doom uh, ploy was whichever one they one-shot first, that was the robot version. (laughs) Well, that too. Because it was always a Doombot. Always a Doombot. And Sue Storm stands in the background and does virtually nothing. Oh, wait, that's just Fantastic Four. Sorry. All right, Jim, number one. Uh, my number one top five thing about champions, uh, I expect this to be controversial amongst the group, but the whole uh, combat turn segment and phase system. Literally bought that game in a game store in Louisville, drove back home to Frankfort, Kentucky, got out on the kitchen table, and we started making characters that night. And then we tried to combat and confronted that combat table that's, it, it looks like the... Uh, Poison saves and metamorphosis alpha. It's a whole grid of a table. What phases and segments are people allowed to act in according to their speed? So at first blush that day, we hated it because it was so complicated. But after we got the hang of it, we really, really loved it. Now, again, today as an older gamer, I would never write or or play or run a game that's that complex. But I look back on that system and it it was uh, it was seminal. In, it, in its execution, because there are games today that it anticipated. Um, Hackmaster works a lot like that. You play Hackmaster, and you, you're you acting in fractions of a second to get your spell off. So design-wise, I have a great appreciation for what they accomplished there, basing it on the speed. And there was a time when we really enjoyed it. On a side note, did you ever have anybody with a speed 12? Uh, I wouldn't have allowed that, but no, so no. Yeah, I was. I think a speed ten supervillain I had once was as high up as it ever got. I mean, I had guys that wanted to be the Flash until they started adding their points up. Yeah, and how expensive it is. Yeah, which is weird for a guy who just runs. Okay, Corbett. I I want to say that Champions is really well thought of and really well uh, researched, and it's very logistical, except for the one point where they missed it, and I don't know exactly why they let I think they let it go because they wanted people to have the freedom to do anything they want. But if any game needed a morale system or a... Alignment? Alignment system, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yeah, I mean, they obviously knew what superheroes were. They describe it, like in the, in the world-building section, they talk about how heroes are good guys, they shouldn't be killing people, but they kind of leave it very open arms... And I know a lot of people took advantage of that. Oh, and we've yeah. kind of mentioned it in many little anecdotes along the way. And that was something that I, I really feel like they somehow missed the boat on that. I don't know. It's definitely a time when there was an alignment system around. Well, the thing is, they did that to a degree with the disadvantages. You know, you had a code versus killing. But you're right. I mean, it just, they, it was very gray. Yeah. And where do you draw the line when you've got a player saying, no, I'm definitely a hero? But the actions they're having their character take, you're thinking, yeah, this doesn't seem very heroic to me. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm beating up the villain with a bus full of nuns. <laughs> yeah. I'm the good guy. 
<laughs> but they were evil nuns. I, I can't remember who wrote it, but there was an article in Adventurer Club magazine that basically had these uh, the gold team, they were called supervillains robbing a bank, and they had all these incredible offensive powers, but had no defenses whatsoever. And they were there specifically for the heroes who just wail in max damage first thing out because they automatically assume, well, I'm facing a villain, so obviously he's at least my power level. So you go in, you whack them, you kill them, and then it's like, oh, crap, you know, and, and the oh, well, the police is coming after you. Oh, no, other heroes are coming after you. No, I didn't mean to do it. Basically, it was there to teach players don't just like spider-man or other characters you know you fight a villain you don't go in wailing max strength right out the gate you tap them lightly first you know if it looks like they can take it you hit them with a little more and a little more but you're right the core rules did not actually go into that which is weird because they had lots of good info for gms and for the superhero genre it almost tells you something about the nature of the gaming play style of the authors I mean, besides just having D&D players show up at my table that wanted to still be murder hobos like everybody gets, this this is a thing that, you know, comic books and movies have been through. I mean, the, they're still arguing about Superman killing half of Metropolis and Man of Steel, taking Zod down. You could argue that Superman, in Superman 2, he killed Zod, Non, and um, Ursa. Oh, well, you could argue, and all you have to do is open up Facebook, and they are arguing. <laughs> yeah, I know. People are arguing <laughs> on the internet? You could argue. Well, that was the argument way back when I was a kid was, yeah, Superman killed those people. It's like, I guess he did, because I don't know. And it wasn't quite on screen. They fell into the cracks. See, he didn't kill them. He just didn't rescue them. I mean, you, what I'm saying is you make a really, really good point and one that I've had to address in what I'm writing right now. All right. So well, we look forward to that. Cool. Liz? Okay, my number one. One of the things that I really enjoyed the most when I was reading through this first edition rule set was, you know, they've got like pretty much every game did at this point in time. You know, there's always, this is what role-playing is, you know, and here's a little brief thought, you know, role-playing is like being in a play, you know, you, everyone has a part, yada, yada, yada. But they went a little bit further with this. This really resonated with me personally. They specifically go on to say the storyline or the plot of the game should be very flexible and responsive to the decisions of the players. No two adventures will be the same because of the different directions that the characters can take. The game master should be willing to integrate the players' ideas and responses into the game. Ideally, a role-playing game involves continuous feedback between the players and the game master. I mean, they're pretty much saying... This is an organic creation. It's not just the game master saying, this is what's going to happen to you and the players going along. You know, they're encouraging the game master, you know, pay attention to what your players are doing, what they're saying. Right. They're talking about player agency in 1981. Right. Listen to what it sounds like your players are wanting and to an extent, give it to them. And they will give you ideas simply by the things that they're doing and the things they're saying around the table, which I thought was just really, really cool for a rule book that was 
written in 1981. (laughs) Or it was copyright 1981, which means it was probably written 1980, or they started in 1979. Who knows? This is really awesome. Body players. I uh, put on my train conductor hat. Railroad misadventure. (laughs) Yeah, you put your Jiffy Pop hat on. Those PCs will barely survive, and they'll like it. No, no, you're right. It is. They they had some really good stuff about not only role playing and running the game, but also for character conception. You know and the importance of character flavor, you know, a good origin. If a character's got a really great origin, it can be impetus for a game master to start some really awesome adventures based on the stuff in the player's character's origins. And it's like, yes! Which is a little different from just beating them over the head with their own disadvantages. That there's like a, a mysterious... Meteor was part of what makes your character powerful. I said, well, let's have some adventures, you know, that go into where did this meteor come from? Are we going to add it to Ababa, Mr. Luthor? Yeah. (laughs) Are there agents who are also after parts of this meteor? Did the meteor actually crash land by chance? Or was it placed there on purpose? You know, it was like, okay, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do. And it's just on a particular character origin. So I'm done. <laughs> I, I, I was just having a moment where I was proud to be on the same podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> Aw. So Mr. Mike, you're number one. Let me reiterate. I love champions. I don't play it as much as I used to back in the day because I have my own one that I frankly kind of prefer now, but champions i played for decades and i tried other games i went to marvel superheroes i tried super squadron tried villains of vigilantes and i liked bits of each of them but in the end i always came back to champions right up until victorious that being said i think that champions might have screwed up a bit when they put in the killing attack now for those listening as i mentioned how damage is done with normal damage earlier about the d6s and both body and stun killing attacks cost more but you basically rolled a d6 or two or three depending on how powerful your attack was and then you rolled another d6 and multiplied that total by whatever you rolled on the multiple dice and that's how many stun you did so bang for buck killing attacks did vastly more body and stun than normal attacks did. And they tended to ignore certain defenses if they didn't buy damage resistance on top of things. So naturally, as you were saying, Jim, the murder hobos, all in my group, all gravitated to killing attacks, killing attacks, killing attacks, killing attacks. It's a sea of adamantine claws. Uh-huh. And super death guns to to shoot, reach out and touch someone with a guided missile or something. It's all killing attack, killing attack, killing attack. And of course, to combat these guys, you had to give the villains or the secret agents killing attack, killing attack, killing attack. And pretty soon, you know, people are throwing around 30, 40, 50 body and 150, 200 stun damages at each other. And it's like a lot of power creep, you know. Eventually, your fights are lasting about as long as they did before you even had killing attacks. It's just you're throwing around vastly bigger numbers. Hmm. If I remember correctly, 
killing attacks also don't have an endurance cost. You're still using the endurance, you know, say if you punch, you're still using the endurance of the the string. They did if you were still, if it was an inherent power. If it was like a gun or a sword or something, then no. Yeah, you've got like super katana yeah. and you're slicing through. Yeah, because otherwise, like if it's claws, adamantine claws, you know, you're still paying some endurance to. But even so, you're not using that much. Certainly for not the amount of damage you're putting out. Yeah, so say you've got the killing attack, you're using, you've got wolverine claws. The killing attack itself isn't costing you, you any extra endurance. You're just using the same amount of endurance if you had those claws without the killing attack. That was another advantage of that, which made and, it really attractive. Yeah, I can't not say this, but if Thor had taken the killing attack, we wouldn't need a whole other Avengers movie. Nope. Yeah. Take the headshot. Yeah. <laughs> you're probably just. Ouch. <laughs> but no, you're right. You're you're half. absolutely you're absolutely right. It was an interesting idea at the time. It was certainly different because, other than in D and D with subdual damage, they never really most game systems hadn't really differentiated quote-unquote, killing damage from you know, knock-you-unconscious damage until I ran into champions. It was the first game I hit that had that. And so, you know, A for effort. And, of course, they wanted to do something to make guns at least a little dangerous. I can understand, but... That, and I wonder if they were doing that for the people who wanted to play, say, a character like the Punisher. You know, someone who's, quote-unquote, a hero... But they will kill. But yet that seems to kind of go against some of the GM advice later in the book. It does. But it does. I wonder if that was partially behind that. Or something yeah. they wanted to give villains to make them pound for pound more effective and thus a greater threat to a hero group. Pity we can't uh, get some of them on for an interview. That would be awesome. Like George McDonald or something. Yeah, they'd probably come on and say, you're all totally wrong. You guys were playing wrong all this time. And you're stupid, too. No, probably not. <laughs> all right. Well, that's our top five. So let's head into saves and no saves. What makes a save and what is going to take half? What makes save? What doesn't make the save, Jim? What makes the save for uh, champions is just fundamental contributions to RPG gaming. There was so much in this game that it was either first up with or uh, greatly popularized all the game mechanics I was talking about. I mean, it, uh, and and that it's still around 40 years later being actively played in new editions tells you the story. Uh, what didn't make the save for me is was always, even back in the day, that the system was never elastic enough to do famous characters. You know, you have players showing up who want to do Superman and Hulk and Thor, and the point-by system never accommodated that uh, elasticity to incorporate those types of characters and power sets. And uh, uh, Marvel superheroes role-playing game, by comparison, didn't seem to have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I think they even say in the in the beginning of the book, you know, often a character will have to be built below the player's initial conception. Of course, you know, they are saying, you know, start with 100 points, which we never did. <laughs> when I was playing, it was always a 300 point base that you started off with. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going by that, there's no way you're going to be able to make Superman. <laughs> and that's just not what uh, my players showed up the table wanting. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of superhero games, not just champions, had trouble with. 
and having played a lot of Marvel superheroes, it could handle it, but there was really kind of a jump. Most heroes in Marvel superheroes got up to unearthly ability. And then you go from unearthly to shift X to class 1000. And those are like massive jumps from just, you know, it's like going from D and D from like three to 18, maybe to 20 and then 50, you know, it's like, Whoa. Yeah. Where do the power breaks in the system happen? Even with experience points and levels. And I think a lot of superhero games have trouble with characters like Superman or Shazam, you know, Captain Marvel or Thor, you know, real Thor, not the movie Thor, because for the most part, let's face it, the movie Thor hasn't been quite as beefy as the comic Thor. Well, I always um, liked and loved Champions, but I had to come up with something that didn't make the save. And I think <laughs> that, that, that was definitely right. a, a point, even if you even yeah. if you can point the finger and say, well, this is the problem you get into adapting certain genres to role playing games. OK, but it still didn't yeah. satisfy my players. My doesn't make the save is very similar to yours. So, yeah. All right. Well, what's yours? Uh, okay. Well, what makes the save? It, it well, it brings back all the memories of, of being a kid and reading through comics and watching old superhero television and movies and serials. You know, they were these amazing godlike characters that I would roll up and tuck in my back pocket, along with Uncle Scrooge, who could you know superheroically swim through metal. I don't know. <laughs> Dive into metal. Yeah. <laughs> and it was that's okay. a power. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but anyway. But it's a, it's a super game. And honestly, whenever I see a super game, even if it's terrible, and I have a few terrible ones, I buy it. And that doesn't that doesn't lessen champions in any way. It just puts it in class with everybody else who's doing it. They're doing a great job, and they're making these heroes come to life for me. And that's fun. That's always fun. What doesn't make the save was the fact that kind of along the same lines as Jim, that you can't... Well, mine's more specific to you can't have... Like the Hulk fight Iron Fist, and it'd be Boy, fair. <laughs> oh, fair, fair. <laughs> I'm not sure it would be fair anywhere. Well, they've done it in the comics. They, they had the Hulk fight everybody. They had Wolverine Spider-Man fight everybody. Spider-Man fought Fire Lord and won, which to date, you know, makes absolutely no sense well, in any game. But but that's a mechanic. Your your point is in a Dave Crockham authored comic that can happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And that's something that I, I still like seeing. I, I think that's one of the, the tropes from old comics that I just am stuck with. That it's, oh, it's it's the new hero fighting Superman for some reason. Why why do all the heroes fight themselves? It, it's it's the wrestling event of the week. And you had to, you had to read it because you saw the cover. I mean, did you see that cover? Oh, man. <laughs> Liz, did little girls do this in grade school? Because when I was in grade school, little boys, this was our constant schoolyard conversation. You know, can Thor beat Superman kind of stuff? Um, <laughs> I asked that question very sincerely. I, I am interested to know. I really don't know. I, I got to say, when I was growing up in elementary school and middle school, I, I had very few friends. So oh, I didn't mean to. I, I know, I know, I know. Um, most of my recesses through elementary school, especially, I sat in a corner outside and I read for the whole time. But I will say, um, also while I was in elementary school, there was a kid, a boy, and sometimes we would trade comic books. We never really talked a lot, but you know, every so often we would we would bring our comic books that we had up, and we would go through each other's books and do a one for one trade. So, well, I'd like this one from your stack, you know. Okay, well, I want to read this one from your stack, and so um, I think it was trade. because 
Yeah. So I did do that. But yeah, I, I never really had that kind of conversation with, with other girls growing up. So I'm sorry. Just for, I, feel, I, de- I, I feel like I, I derailed this whole segment of the podcast and asked an awkward <laughs> question. Well, And now let's listen to DM Liz's terrible childhood of loneliness. (laughs) No, it's cool. (laughs) I was just laughing because I was thinking of Uh, Stand By Me. I think it was Stand By Me, where where they were arguing about, you know, whether Superman would beat up Mighty Mouse. (laughs) And they were like, that's impossible. Why? Mighty Mouse carried like a dozen elephants in one hand. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon character. <laughs> Superman is real life. You wouldn't have a real life guy fight a cartoon character. Yeah, you're right. Be an epic fight, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> Why does that remind me of the Flintstones conversation they had in Red Dwarf about Wilma oh, versus yeah, Betty? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'd go with Betty, is- but I'd be thinking of Wilma. <laughs> <laughs> This is an insane discussion. Yeah. You're right. She'd never leave Fred and we know it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Liz, over to you then. Okay. What makes the save? Because this is a superhero type game and it is what it is, inevitably, most of the book is going, is taken up with, you know, you've got your lists of powers, your costs, you know, the skills, the advantages, the disadvantages, you know, all of the things necessary to build a superhero character. But rather than just being a big book of lists, it also takes the time to point out the different things that go into creating an archetypal superhero campaign. Motivations for villains. The death trap that you drop the hero into and then leave, assuming they will be killed. The the monologuing, you know. At, they make sure that you have what you need to create the flavor of a comic book, four-color comic book adventure in your games. They make sure, you know, not only do you have all the things to build heroes, to build villains, these are the things that you should try to insert into your game to, you know, make it really feel like you're in a comic book. For me, that really made the save. What doesn't make the save? There's, there's, there's a lot of math. There's, there's, there's math. Um, and not only the math. You've, you've got different formulas for calculating different stuff. I will say most of the champions' things that you're doing, they try to stick with your power costs in five-point increments. Except when it's three points. Yes, enhanced senses, costs being a notable exception. You've got your primary stats, you've got your secondary stats that are calculated from your primary stats. And you have your OCV and your DCV and your ECV and what segments you can move on based on what your speed is, etc. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it, it is not an accident that they provide examples for every single power or incident, how they all work throughout the book, because it can be overwhelming. And this doesn't come into play until. Not third edition's champions, but champions three, I think. There's a champions two, where you can create a base. You have to buy your hero base with collected experience points. And you build it like you build a character. And you give your base advantages for more points. And it's just numbers on numbers on numbers. And you can really get bogged down in the numbers over the role play. 
Right, right. Math, math is fine, but I draw the line at actual algebra. Right. You know, so Would you like it with less math or half as much math or X over three, two, one to the left math? <laughs> Wait till we get to the aftermath RPG from. <laughs> aftermath. Oh, oh, it makes champions look rules math light. So much math. It was even in the name. <laughs> But that does not make the save for me. It's like, there, there's a little, it goes a little too far. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Uh, not to beat a dead equine, but my make the save is, it was my first superhero game. It was the first game that allowed me to customly build the exact character I wanted to play at any given time. That counts for a lot for me. It used lots of D6, but it was D6, which were easy to find, unlike polyhedrons. At the time. Oh, but remember, you only need three D six. That's like one and a half Monopoly games. I, su <laughs> I suppose, strictly speaking, you only need one die. You just roll it <laughs> a lot. But anyway, I really liked that, and it did not have random powers, like I said earlier, because that always. I mean, I guess if it was a one shot or something, it'd be fun. But usually, when I get into a superhero game. I have a character concept already in my head. It may not be perfectly lined up, but relatively what I want. And most of these other games, we before Champions, we even tried to make Gamma World into a superhero game to play. But it didn't really work because, you know, you had like Death Field and Predator Attraction Fields and all that stuff that doesn't really convert to at least late 70s, early 80s superhero. It's easy prey, man. <laughs> you could smell him coming i mean i know some people love that but i just i've never liked random superpowers doesn't make the save as i said before the complexity as a gm is just too much i mean it's it's a bit rough when you're running it one or two characters but when you're the the gm having to run all the all the normals all the agents all the police all the supervillains it can get really overwhelming. And maybe, you know, I worked at it as a teenager. As I've gotten older, I've just gotten less, less willing to put up with fiddly bits. So, yeah, <laughs> that's the don't make safe for me. That makes me feel better because I know it's not just me. No, no, not, not just you. So that has been Champions First Edition by Hero Games. Hope you've enjoyed listening to our opinions on it. All this aside, I think we can all agree that it's a fun game to look at, read, and even play a time or two. You know, don't take our word for it. I mean, we loved it enough that I'm writing something in the same genre. Oh, gosh, And yes. I've collected just about everything there was for first to third edition champions, because it was great. I still love it. I read it sometimes just for inspiration. But... I went all Corbett in the pick and pee store, because I dug my old books out in preparation for this and just holding them and smelling them was cool. <laughs> See full sensory experience with champions. All right. Well, I guess that pretty much wraps things up. So say good night, everybody. Good night. See ya. Briark. No, wait, that's your line. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Super Briark. <laughs> 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 The Mudpuppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. 
The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half. Superhero. Sarge? No. Rosemary, the telephone operator? No. Henry, the mild-mannered janitor? Could be. Hong Kong Fooey, number one super guy. Hong Kong Fooey, quicker than the human eye. He's got style, a groovy smile, and a mob that just won't stop. When the going gets rough, he's stupid tough with a Hong Kong...